This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. Welcome to the Invested Podcast, where we are learning how to invest. Not speculate, but invest in spite of the fact that the market is not cooperating at all. (laughs) (laughs) That might be my new favorite. (laughs) It's so funny. Never were truer words spoken. (laughs) Oh my gosh. It is so funny. Like we were talking about last time, you know, the the ratio between the Wiltshire GDP and and the, the stock market pricing is historically so skewed now. It's over double where it needs to be to be a good deal. In yeah, terms of just the interesting whole point. Interesting point. Because you said it was at 170 something. Yep. And to be a and, good you know, deal. Good deals are 80 and below. Yeah. So right. more than <clears throat> more than double what a good deal would be. So we really, right now, if you were trying to find really good companies, you might find yourself stretching to uh, to make it work in your head, to make yes, the numbers indeed. work. Yes, you might indeed. be over projecting the magical thinking of please mm-hmm. let this company be something I can buy out of yes. the entire smorgasbord of companies out there that you look at and steadily get more and more depressed about how great it is and that you can't own it. <laughs> it sucks. Own it. It's like and this great you... combo of like schadenfreude for yourself where you're like kind of enjoying that you can't, that you found something you love, but you like feel sad that you can't buy it. It's... What is schadenfreude? Well, you've well, been in Zurich a while now. Okay, so schadenfreude, <laughs> whatever it A was. commonly used term in the English-speaking world as well, Dad. What schadenfreude means, and I used it... I think it, I heard it in a Brad Pitt movie. I'm sure you did. <laughs> Some inglorious bastards situation. Inglorious bastards, Schadenfreude. Um, I used it very badly. What it means is to take pleasure in the misfortune of others. Oh, it's like well. when somebody else has some, you know, a flat tire, and you don't like that person. You're like have a little bit of like joy about it. That's Schadenfreude. Oh well, that seems very un not nice, sort of. It's not very nice, no. Schadenfreude <laughs> means taking pleasure in the suffering of others. It's like it's not a, it's not a mean thing. It's like a small pleasure in the small misfortune of others. So it's not the Comanches taking no. pleasure in torturing their prisoners. That would not count as Schadenfreude at all. No. <laughs> <laughs> it would be it's something small. It's like a it's that small little thing of just like the example I just gave. Like Okay. <laughs> It's it's How? a very German feeling of, you know, just a, a, a tiny bit of prick of joy at just a certain moment when you see something else happening. I have, I have, I have a feeling we all do this, but don't want to admit it. Well, that's why <laughs> it's a thing. commonly used term in the English-speaking world, because we don't have a word for that in English, but it's a great mm. word. Mm, that's a great word. So uh-huh. what I was referring to is like kind of a, I used it very badly, a self-referential schadenfreude in a way of like kind of 
being kind of happy in your own misery. Oh, man, that is so deep and complex. It's way over my head. Yeah, no, I don't think it's over your head. I think you got it. I think you got it. (laughs) I may have it. So So when when you get that feeling of the uh, not being able to find something, or you find something, but then you can't buy it, it's a bad feeling. It sucks. It's depressing. It is sort of, although just finding something you really understand and sticking it on your watch list. It's good. And knowing what price you want to pay for it, I find is just the most wonderful sort of thing. It's just like, yes. Because I know from doing this for a long time, that will go on sale. Hmm. And that is just one less thing I got to think about. Well, maybe that's the method that you're about to tell us. Do this for a long time and you will have perspective. You'll have perspective. I was actually thinking that when you find a company that is on sale in this market, Mm -hmm. you should be very careful. Oh. Very careful. Because when the market is priced more than double where historically it's been for something to be on sale in the market. Now, this is a gross generalization because in all markets, there are, in fact, great companies that go on sale. There are. And and no matter how overpriced the market gets, the market, Mr. Market, moves money around. And it goes from one industry where it's likely to go up like crazy and when that goes up like crazy, then people sell out of it. And sometimes it'll go down much farther than it should. Or individual companies are having a problem. They could have a problem and everybody bails out and runs away. Mm-hmm. Um, and that company goes on sale. But it's much more difficult. And you should know it's much more difficult in a market like this one where, in general, things are double what they would be at a market where we would think things are on sale. So things are really fully priced and then some, okay? Mm-hmm. Well, in that market, when you see something on sale, you you should be careful because there are lots of people looking for on-sale companies right now. And if you found one and the stock market hasn't found it, the people at Goldman Sachs haven't found it and Morgan Stanley hasn't found it and J.P. Morgan hasn't found it, but you found it, you're the special person that found it, that's really amazing. I just, I, I've heard people say that a lot lately, and I'm just not sure I totally buy it because it goes back to what we've talked about so many times about our own time horizon compared to other people's time horizon, meaning that we have a very long-term one and and other people have a more shorter-term one. And I just... I don't really buy that in this market. Yes, overall, it's harder to find stuff. I do agree with that. But being able to find companies that are having events, that are having things happen, that are making the price go down for a short period of time, that's a situation that happens in any kind of market. Happens in a bad market, happens in a good market, happens in a medium market. And those things usually are happening without being connected to the overall market. So if it's one thing to say like, oh, I found a company and the price is down from where it was. Like it's down from this very high market. In that case, it's probably still incredibly high and Mm -hmm. wouldn't be a good buy. But 
if it's if it's meeting the criteria of your own pricing methodology on its own, independently, not related to like, oh, it used to be high and now it's down, then I think that that's something that you found. And the reason other people aren't buying it is probably the same reasons that would be going on in any other kind of market. No? Well, everything you say is totally true. That's exactly right. And that's exactly how to think about it. Okay. But what... What I'm saying in terms of being very cautious mm-hmm. is to make sure you understand why these people are getting out of that business. It's really important that you you oh, understand like who's selling to you, who's your who's seller, selling it. Yeah, yeah, interesting point. I mean, these are 85 percent professionals who are unloading to you, mm-hmm. and they've got very good reasons why they are doing that. Mm-hmm. I guarantee you, they have great good reasons. Sure. And your point, very well taken, is that those reasons may have more to do with a short-term time frame under which they're judged rather than the long-term final judgment on the company itself. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, then more power to us, the little guy that has this long-term horizon and, and and we can handle two or three years where it goes nowhere, no big deal, Mm -hmm. right? Or it goes down even more. So why be more cautious now? Because you've got to make sure you really are not into something. You're not about to buy something that has a terminal problem in this market. In other words, hmm. <clears throat> there you just have to be doubly sure. I don't, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's no big difference. You always have to be sure. Now, but I can see what you're saying. Problem. I can see what you're saying because if we're if we're in a situation where the whole market has dropped, there's been something that's gone on and the market's just been dropping, let's say for six months and it's really been going down and companies are hurting and you're seeing which companies are surviving, right? Like some companies are going to go away really quickly. Right. Somebody's going to be the pets.com of this market. Right. And other ones are going to be the Coke and be really well-priced at the end of the day and are going to last for the next 20 years or way longer. So you can see that happening to your point, in a market that's dropping. Whereas in this market, companies aren't being tested at all. They're getting easy money all the time. So right. Okay. You've, you've done a great job of making my point. So That's what I'm here it, for. <laughs> <laughs> you see it clear and, um, and express it very well. And so that's why we when when we're in a market that's really up there and everything is going good and people are buying anything for more than they should pay yeah, for it. Yeah. When they're selling it um and they're not stupid, we just got to make sure that we know why. So, yeah. you know, yeah. that, that I mean right now Boeing for example is is a company that's under a lot of pressure from a problem that they've got and they are trying to work their way through it. They just fired their CEO. You know, those, that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. That's a big deal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I look at Boeing and I go, man, I would jump all over this at 200 and, you know, 50, 280 a share. It's selling for 330 down from 450. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it's dropped a lot, mm-hmm. but it hasn't dropped so much that it is so 
good deal. I can just jump all over it. I can get in a 10 cap price and blah, blah, blah. Just isn't there, right? Because that's what so many people look at. It's dropped 40% or whatever that adds up to. It's dropped 80% from its high. Like that's what people say and seem to care about. And that doesn't actually mean anything. All that it means is is relative to what it was. It's lower. Yeah. Just when when you see that, just think, you know, the price of gold necklaces at a beachfront gold store. On sale, 80% off. <laughs> we buy gold. Jeez, yeah. Then yeah. That's price. It just doesn't, price just doesn't mean anything. It means what somebody paid. That's all. It doesn't mean value. It doesn't mean what it's worth. It doesn't have a damn thing to do with it, mm-hmm. except in the long run. Eventually, the market will price things where they should be. And that's what we trust will happen. And that's why we don't want to buy things that are expensive, because the market's going to eventually price them where they should be. And even if they're gone, they've gone up in 10 years, which a good company might, you know, if you buy it and pay too much, you're still going to come out okay. You're just not going to have a great rate of return. You're just not going to get rich. And what we want to do is we want to do an investment style that gives us financial freedom. We want to have enough money coming out of this thing with high rates of return and the ability to do that consistently that we don't have to worry about what we're, what's our job, right? That's, we do. that's where we want to go. Yeah. So be careful in this market because things, uh, companies tend to have their prices be inflated and that can lead to not so great companies being propped up and it can also lead to good companies um, being so overpriced that maybe your own metrics get a little bit skewed inside your head, (laughs) which is always the scary part. But you were going to talk about a method, another method. Is this the method that you wanted to talk about? No, this is, this is just sort of leading to that. Okay. And so the second method we've talked about actually quite a bit here that was developed by Robert Schiller at Yale, who's ah, not just the a second method. Yeah, the Schiller PE ratio. I have to say, if anybody wants more information about this, you can pick up our book, Invested, which goes into <laughs> excellent detail. It's a cheap plug <laughs> about the Schiller PE ratio. But you can listen to it here for free. Go ahead, Dad. <laughs> there you go. Um, and and what what Schiller did that was so brilliant was to find a method that shows that um, the market can be irrational from time to time. And when it's irrational and you're buying into it and it's irrationally high, your long-term rate of return by owning the whole market, which is typically what people do in their 401k, they diversify across the whole market, your rate of return in the whole market is going to be very, very low. Mm-hmm. It is going to approach zero for the next 20 years if you die in when it's too high. Yeah, Yeah. long term. Um, And when you have a market that's very cheaply priced, your long-term rates of return, even if you buy the whole market, will be quite good. They'll be over 10%. And so um, this this chart that he's created is available by Googling Schiller, S-H-I-L-L-E-R, P-E ratio. And it'll show you this chart. goes all the way back to 1870. And you can see very quickly that the average through all of the, you know, the last 120 years up to the 1990s has been at about a 15 to 16 PE ratio. 
This is an adjusted P ratio for inflation. You call it a, a uh, cyclically adjusted P E ratio, CAPE, a CAPE ratio. Yeah, so he got the Nobel. He got that. the Nobel Prize for this because he. And I am going to make this up a little bit because I haven't read the book, although it's on my coffee table right now. But I'll open it at some point. But he he came up with this method of developing that particular PE ratio, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. After just researching every year versus the S and P five hundred and trying to understand. And PE, we got to say, sorry to interrupt you. PE is price to earnings ratio. Just Right. So you take the price of the stock divided by its earnings and you get a number. But he, tell me again what the Schiller ratio is. Well, the Schiller takes into account a 10-year average of PE ratios. Oh, that's what it is. Cyclical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. And it's, in other words, it's spreading the shorter term ups and downs in the market spreading that out over a number of years, which softens the curve. And it gives you a ultimately a better number to know where is the market dangerous and where is it super good, right? And so this you can see that the market is typically averaging out around a 15 or 16 uh, Schiller PE. And it's a really good time to buy stocks when it's at below 10. Mm. Fabulous, because historically you've just killed it, right? So in other words, when in 1921, if you'd bought a bunch of stocks, the Schiller PE was at five and you would have made a fortune in the next eight years. And then if you were really smart and you had the Schiller PE ratio, which you didn't, <laughs> which you didn't, you would see that in 1929, you would see that in 1929, the Schiller PE ratio had gotten all the way up to 30 and you would notice that that's a long way north of 15. And you would have been very nervous and you would have gotten out of the market, mm. all right? Mm-hmm. And then you would have been able to buy back just a couple years later, again, at a 5 PE ratio. And you would have made another huge fortune. So the market's very, very up and down like this. And what we've learned over 140 years is that when it gets up above, you know, 24, 25, it's getting into dangerous territory. And it's only been up there in all those years previous in 1928-29, it got up there at 30, okay? and then Even in, in 99? Ni- in 99, it got up there. Okay. It got clear to 40. Yeah. And then again, in 2008, it got all the way up to 28 and then collapsed. And now it's at 31. Hmm. So there's only been three times in history of this ratio going clear back to 1870. One was the Great Depression. The second one was the collapse of 2000, the big, you know, the tech stock crash. And the third time is now. So yeah, I remember looking at the chart. It could. I remember looking at the, I don't have it in front of me right now. I remember looking at it and it's like this sort of zigzaggy chart. And then all of a sudden there's this like insane skyscraper from above everything else. And that's 99. And then it sort of zigzags a little bit for 2008. And then it's us. And it's just like steadily moving up to the right. <laughs> and, and by the way, that 1998-1999 skyrocket skyscraper was exactly the time when several investors who were world-class superstars of this kind of investing that we're talking about just quit. I mean, they their own investors were hounding them 
to get into this market when they were sitting in cash. Buffett is one of the, he didn't quit because he doesn't have a fund. He just has Berkshire Hathaway Mm -hmm. and he could control it. But, oh man, you know, the, he didn't have any place to put the money and he was actively looking to buy back Berkshire stock during that time period. Julian Robertson, who has the second best track record I've ever heard of, um, was actively bailing out of the market. He was all in cash and he finally just quit his fund. And I remember really clearly watching him on TV mm-hmm. saying, I just don't understand this market anymore. It's nothing like I've ever seen. So we're sort of back in that. A nothing like I've ever seen sort of market could be continuing to go crazy for another little while. But looking at 140 years of history, we can see that a little while is really just a little while. It, it may be a year or two. But inevitably gravity catches up with a market that's priced like this. So that's the Schiller PE. And some people argue that the Schiller PE isn't right anymore, that things have changed, and that the true uh, fact of the Schiller PE is it's averaging in a lot of really uh, high market PEs that aren't shouldn't be counted because they were off. So I thought I'd just look up just the regular PE ratio, right? Okay, wait. The Schiller PE shouldn't be counted as regular PEs because it's a little off? What? Well, because the argument would be that in the last 10 years, let's let's say four or five years ago, it would say in the last 10 years, it's including some really high PE ratios. Okay. And therefore, it's higher than it actually looks like. No, oh. It looks higher than it actually is. Hmm. But they can't say that anymore. Today, the Schiller P.E. is at 31, and the actual P.E. ratio of the S&P 500 is at um, 24.2. Which is incredibly now, consider, high. guys. Hmm? That's incredibly high. It's incredibly high. Um, there's only been the year 2000 and the year 2008 in, uh, excuse me, and... 1895 (laughs) (laughs) that have been that high. That's it. Even 1929 wasn't that high. Hmm. Okay. Hmm. So we are in a skyscraping, crazy priced market right now. And we've already talked about why, right? The interest rates being extremely low, not having alternatives out there. But it starts to build on itself yeah. and you start to get a bubble. Yeah. And just by saying, you know, you, you sort of have to be in the market and everybody feels that way, there's nothing else you can do, you develop this market bubble mentality. So we're trying not to do that market bubble mentality. We're trying to look at this soberly and Who's recognize we? that it's we, me, and the mouse in my pocket. Oh, okay. I me, didn't know if you meant it's like... the royal we. I didn't know if you meant like... um we, the American government, or something like that. No, it's just we royally. Okay. <laughs> you. <laughs> I'm looking at it like this. And um, and trying to trying to stay pretty sober about the whole thing, right? The night, you know, the, we know that this thing can't sustain because it never has. But that's inductive logic. It's the same logic that a chicken has when, yep. you know, the farm door slams at six in the morning. He gets fed <laughs> yep. every day for two straight months. And then the door slams. He thinks he's going to get fed. Yeah. <laughs> no. So the, we don't know for sure because we don't, we can't read the future, but we know that historically this way of investing, this way of thinking about investing 
of waiting patiently until the market greed goes away and market fear begins is the safest way to manage our money uh, in the long run. And I think... And so that's how we do it. And I think it's pegged to um, actual profits that companies make. And as we talked about last time, at some point these stock prices have to start reflecting the actual profits that companies make. And the question you're is... You're making a really good point. Um, there are some things that intrude in that reflection, actually, that are very important right now. Um, two of them are manipulations by the companies themselves. Okay. Right? So um, the probably the major one of those is that they're going to buy back their own stock. Yeah, and true, stock, true stock buybacks um, result in the stock price finding a bottom because the company's stepping in and buying it and making the price go up yeah. if it can. And, um, and so that puts an artificial price on it if they've got a lot of extra money. And do they have a lot of extra money? Yes, mm-hmm. they do. And do they um, want to take a risk and buy a different company at these high prices? Or right. You know, open a new branch when nobody's quite sure what's happening. Well, they might want to do that because of interest rates, but yeah, they're not—they're not taking a lot of risks with all their extra money. They're not these taking days. a lot of risks, and so it, real interesting right now. W- when we look at companies that are taking risks, what we would expect to see is that capital expenditures go up. That—that that is, they're investing not just in st- stuff for how this year is going to go. Mm-hmm. But in long-term investing, they're putting in railroad tracks, they're putting in airports, they're, they're putting in warehouses, and they're buying equipment that's going to last them several years. Those are capital expenditures, and we don't see that. It's one of the real uh, conundrums for President Trump is that the idea of cutting taxes for American businesses was to help them be more competitive to their bottom line but with the expectation that they would invest the money in more jobs by building warehouses and more capital expenditures, and they just haven't done that. Mm -hmm. Instead, they bought back their own stock, Mm -hmm. which is an artificial boost to the per-share stock price, does nothing for the value of the company whatsoever. Yeah, it's frustrating, and it's happening so much that there are, if you want to take a minute and just Google stock buybacks, there are some really interesting articles that have been written um, about how this works. And it's a fun like hour of your life to just read about these stock buybacks and how many companies are using them to help their stock price and to just use some of this extra money and what it's doing to the market. And it's one of the ways we actually look to see if management is a good allocator. Now I'm just thinking out loud here. I really need to get that that into the tool set. The allocation of capital needs to be a judgment call. We look at we look at companies in our tool set um, of having good management if they're keeping their debt very very low to zero, and if their return on equity, return on invested capital is staying high and moving up, then we like the way they're allocating capital. But there's another allocation of capital that's very valuable, and that is to look to see if they're doing stock buybacks at a reasonable price. Mm-hmm. Totally. So if, they're, if their company is massively overpriced and they don't know that, that's a bad sign for allocation of capital. If their company is massively overpriced, they do know it and they're buying back stock, that's a terrible allocation of capital because they're spending my dollar and they're buying 50 cents worth of value for it. Yeah, 
and bad idea. And they're taking my money as a shareholder and using it in a way that's not <laughs> optimal. It's it's just it's wasting the money that we have that they could be giving to me in a dividend, which I would much prefer. Much I mean, prefer. we've talked a lot. We've talked a lot about how companies can use this extra cash. They can invest it in capital expenditures. They can invest it in buying other companies um, through M and A. They can give it as dividends to the shareholders, and they can use it as um, to buy back their own shares. And those, we've talked a lot about how those things are all kind of in theory, equal. It's just a matter of choice on the on the part of the management. Um, and actually, I think you've said a bunch, like you would prefer that they not do the dividend option if the other options can be used well. Yeah, but, I prefer they grow it for me. Yeah, but they have to use it well. And instead, what these guys are doing with buybacks when the stock price is so high is just wasting it. And it's incredibly frustrating to see. Because it's giving buybacks yeah. a bad name to the point where now there's like politicians talking about legislation about it. Yeah, Warren is out there on a with a platform that that's out to stop these. Kinds oh, when you of said Warren, buybacks. I thought you meant Warren Buffett, and I was like, oh, no, no, Elizabeth <laughs> Warren. <clears throat> you know, to stop these sort of heinous buybacks, and while I don't cheer on her method of doing it from the top down, because there's all these unintended consequences so of regulation. Many, yeah. Um, I cheer on the, 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 I, the I cheer her emotion about it. the content yeah. is like, yeah, these morons. I mean, IBM has been buying back its stock for the last 10 years and you can may really make a good case that they have been just wasting shareholder money. They might as well take those billions out in the parking lot and burn them <laughs> for all the good they've done. And, and, and with those billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars they spent on stock buybacks at 180 a share and 160 a share and 150 a share and their stock is at like 130, right? It's just for years like this. So this is, I mean, go go read about IBM's buybacks and you'll see what I mean and just add up the billions and that money's gone, G-O-N-E, gone mm-hmm. if this company doesn't get its act together. Mm-hmm. So all it's done is support the stock option prices for, share, for the uh, management team and that's just a heinous use of the money. So the and then of course the the second way these guys prop everything up is to borrow money and buy other companies so this is just one of the other ways you can do it you buy another company and your company revenue goes up mm-hmm. and you start to look like you're a bigger company and then the stock ideally goes up with that right so you get you get management teams that are bad allocators of capital making very bad judgments when it comes to acquiring other companies. And again, not to beat up on IBM too much, but they've done a lot of buying of a lot of stuff and it hasn't improved their position Mm -hmm. in the market. Mm -hmm. While Microsoft came out of nowhere and just handed IBM its Talk about a success story. That's been amazing to watch. That I CEO, did not predict that. I don't know. No. I don't know who did. No, Somebody smart did, coming. but it wasn't me and it wasn't anybody I know. Mm-mm. It wasn't the guys running Microsoft. <laughs> they didn't know that was going to be the thing. I think, I think so, somebody knew. Somebody was going for it. I sure, think, sure. They, what's his name? Satya, they, mm, Satya something is the CEO. Yeah, and I can't remember his name either right now, but 
fabulous job that guy's done is amazing, I, right? Unbelievable. And here's IBM with more resources by far and nothing. He's just struggling along with a very small percentage of that market. So, yeah, um, mergers and acquisitions, I mean, you, you can see companies do it. Man, um, but you dollar made, stores. But you made the point that they borrow to purchase companies. They borrow to purchase companies. Which is dollar different than taking dollar. your money and purchasing companies, which is different than purchasing companies using your stock. Those are right. three different and ways. Three different ways. And again, you want to see that the guys who are running there, the women who are running the company are allocating capital sensibly. So if they're using their own stock to buy companies, you really want them to be using stock that's way overpriced. <laughs> right? You want, I want you to buy companies with stock priced at $2 a share when it's only worth a dollar. Buy all the companies you can <laughs> with stock like that, right? I don't Two want you to buy companies with stock priced at 50 cents, <laughs> right? It's worth a dollar. Don't be spending it at 50 cents. So, and, and they, and bad allocators do that all the time. And so they, instead of using our money, then they'll go borrow money. But you know, and that sounds okay, except that, especially when you're paying 3% interest, except you guys, when they borrow money at a corporate level, they don't get it like you get it on your house for 30 years. They don't get a 30-year loan. They get a three-year loan, which means they are at risk for refinancing that money if they mm -hmm. can't pay it off in three years. And, you know, they just mostly can't. And so Dollar Tree buys family dollar in a bidding war with Dollar General. Hmm. And Dollar Tree wins the bidding war, paying far more than it should have hmm. for family dollar, borrows the money, and it's it's trying to bury them. Now, years later, it's they're still struggling under the debt load. The debt's, the debt's burying them, you're saying? Oh, the debt's horrible, and they it's so hard for them to get out from under it. And they've got all these stores that they paid too much for that aren't doing well, right? So you got to have people running the business that are really good at allocating capital. Yeah. And um, when you see them spending money, mergers, acquisitions, borrowing money, increasing the debt, buying back stock at a high price, those are bad allocators. And we want to stay away from those guys, especially in this kind of a market. We did a really fun interview with Jacob Taylor all about capital allocation. And I would suggest going back to listen to that one. And he wrote a great book that Charlie Munger himself recommended. Um, so look up Jacob Taylor's book on Amazon and, and check out our interview with him. And I think that kind of gives us a good so, stopping point for today. All right. So we've got the Schiller PE and the uh, Wilshire GDP ratio, which mm -hmm. are the two methodologies that we've talked about before. But to point them out again, I think is really cool. I'm really glad that you brought them up again. It's, it's a good way to start the year and kind of know where we're at. Yeah. Give some context. We're have have a little um, tether to what's gone before. And then it, it allows me, and this is ultimately personal, right? Investing is a very personal process, and it allows me to feel more comfortable. That like, okay, maybe, you know, because I could think, maybe I'm just not beating the bushes hard enough. Maybe I should be working harder. Maybe I should be studying more. Maybe I should be reading more. Well, that's probably and, always true. Well, that's always true, of course. <laughs> and but then you just find, you know, that there's a frustration and you start to realize, oh, yeah, okay. Well, the market is massively priced historically, way above its its values historically. And that gives me some comfort that I probably should be having trouble right now finding good stuff. And yeah. then, okay, I got that. 
now then, what, what's, the re, what's, what's the result of that is to remind myself to be patient. Hmm. Continue building the watch list. Like you said, you find this wonderful company, it's frustrating because you can't buy it. Well, there's another side to that coin, and that is, wow, I got another one that's for my list that I can buy down the road. Another gem here that's going to go on sale. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that, that makes me feel good when I can put one up there. I agree. I love adding to the wish list. <laughs> you do. All right. It's really cool. Thanks, everybody. Right, everybody. Time to go play. Bye. See ya. Hi, guys. Thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information, including show notes and more episodes, visit us at investedpodcast.com. There's a special offer waiting for podcast listeners to attend my three-day investing workshop absolutely free. So just head to investedpodcast.com. Everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it.